Greetings, Amigabs, and Top Teners everywhere. Welcome back to another edition of Top Ten with Kyle and Mike. I am your co-host, Kyle. Opposite me today, as he is every week, is your co-host, Michael. He's looking very good. His quarantine haircut is growing in very nicely. He's got his hands in the air. Like, he simply just does not care. I think that's reflective of his attitude. Now, very importantly, it's not just Michael with me today. It's our good friend Alex. He's back for another guest appearance. You might remember him very recently from his Tom Hanks episode. Now, this is normally the part where I say we're going to be talking about some kind of top 10 list. But today we're going to break from our normal format a little bit to talk about something uh, very important in our minds. Uh, And so for those reasons, we're going to play with our format a little bit uh, and kind of have a more open, engaged discussion on a topic that Alex has researched a bit for us. So without further ado, Alex, what are we talking about today? Yeah, happy to be here. Um, yeah, we're, I guess we're talking, the simplest way to put it, we're talking about the state of the world in relation to, you know, some of the re- the protests are happening right now, the Black, Life, Black Lives Matter move, Matters movement. Um, yeah, just everything that's going on right now is a result of, you know, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. So I think before we kind of launch into the Alex piece of this, I think I want to say a couple things. One this is the most important thing. Alex is going to downplay his own expertise because that's what Alex does. But Alex is extremely knowledgeable about this topic. He's very engaged in current affairs. He is one of our important ears on the ground here on this podcast. He keeps us up with what's going on in uh, current affairs and the San Francisco 49ers. So that's one thing that's important. The other thing that's important is I think Kyle and I, and Kyle, I'm going to speak for us, but you can jump in and correct me. I think Kyle and I would both say we are on uh, the side of people who are trying to do their part in the world, trying to be good citizens, and specifically trying to be good white people in a world where, you know, that's not the case for everybody. But I think we would both acknowledge the limits of our education on topics that really matter. And I think we also really acknowledge the limits of giving a shit. Giving a shit is nice, and we both give a shit. But giving a shit without translating that into, you know, affecting real change is not very helpful. And so I think that's part of why we wanted to enlist Alex to help us is because Alex is somebody who actually has taken his given a shit and converted into really like doing things for other people. So I think that's I think that's a big part of what we're trying to do here. And I, I suspect we'll probably do this a few more times in the coming weeks as we kind of try to figure out how to convert our, you know, couple of goobers who like Lord of the Rings in a generally kind-spirited way into being better citizens of the world. I think we both spent a lot of time recently trying to educate ourselves because as far as like a lot of these topics go, like the only education you're going to receive is the stuff that you actively pursue, which requires like energy and like intentional thought. And so I think that's one thing that you can do and what we're trying to do here. And I think Alex is like you said, a really good, source for that. I think another hopefully positive outcome of this is that like most of these conversations happen like through larger like media sources and like these kinds of conversations don't always happen as often as they should like between friends and like this is a good opportunity for us to kind of have a discussion and hopefully like encourage others that's like a thousand it's not like thousands of people listen to this podcast but if it's a way to make other people start to think about 
these topics from that point of view, I think that's a good thing. And I, and I think, you know, the important thing is like, we know our demographics, our, our listener base is generally people who are like us. And that's, you know, 20 something white people who care about their black and brown brothers and sisters who approach the world with empathy and who are generally educated, but who are looking for ways to do more. And I think, I think, it, I think it's important we approach the topics with humility because we just, there's a lot of stuff we don't know. And I think that's, that's why Alex is, is a helpful source for us because like I said, and I can't reiterate this enough. Alex is a person in our lives who jokes about not giving a shit and actually gives a shit and acts in giving a shit kind of ways um, that are very real. So like we, we really appreciate that about Alex. We like to make fun of him on this podcast um, but he's he's one of those people who actually lives out good works in his real life. No, oh, thanks, guys. Don't don't make me blush. Like I said, he's going to downplay his own ability to. I am going to downplay because I have been doing so much reading and research and conversations with people, just you know, of all backgrounds, and it's just uh, it's overwhelming. It, it, it's stuff that I've you know, it's. <sighs> I've, for the longest time, I've thought, you know, there's been systemic racism just, you know, just at a lot of levels, um, you know, housing, education, healthcare, just, I, I've always thought these things, but I didn't really, you know, like I had done some very preliminary research and I would still kind of categorize what I'm doing now as preliminary research. Like I have some numbers and statistics and things like that to kind of pull from to inform my opinions. Um, but I, I still feel like it's just an overwhelming vast, like, how do you, how do you like it takes forever to become an expert on what I consider to be like decades, if not hundreds of years of neglect, uh, uh, you know, on uh, neglect on behalf of like our federal and state governments that are supposed to empower our people or make them feel safe and protected and enable them to pursue the opportunities that they, you know, they rightfully deserve in this country. And I just it's it's hard to kind of take in at once. And it's just like it's 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 not pleasant reading and especially like right now at a time of like you know still trying to live a lockdown life and still trying to like you know find happiness in here and there this is like very you know it's it's tough to read and i i'm like look i'm not i'm not black i don't know what it's like to be a black american i have you know i've experienced racism and so i've definitely felt like you know i've internalized a lot of that negative feeling and energy that comes from you know racist encounters um that informs like my philosophy and my attitude about you know things that relate like relations to this but i will never understand what it's like to be black but i can maybe you know offer some insights just as to like what i've maybe gone through or just like i can you know i can feel the frustrations or like i can feel i can understand like when you know when racism happens it really puts a person into a mood like that is almost indescribable like it's like for me it's it put me through a lot of like near existential like crises about like just you know my worth as an american or my like my value as an american as a person in general and it like it really attacks that and in a way that you can't even like rationalize you know because what is racism except um, you know but just something that's so hard to really comprehend you know when you're like someone who's been afflicted by it well and it's also something that's impossible to understand like unless you've experienced it so like you can try to empathize and you know like understand try to understand it but until you've actually felt it you know it's hard to you can't understand it and i don't think i don't want to speak for you mike but like as a white <laughs> straight male like it's hard to come across that kind of experience at least for me ultimately the i would say the my view of the mission statement of trying to talk to alex and then I, we've got a couple other people we've kind of talked about who we think might be helpful for us to chat with um 
I think we have no patience for people who don't have empathy, people who are openly and overtly racist. No time for them. There's no time for them on this podcast. We're not friends with people like that. We're not interested in being friends with people like that. Um, so no time for those people. So we're not here to teach empathy and teach people that they need to care. I think we would we would hope that that's something we can take for granted. I think what we really want to talk about is how to how to face down that sort of overwhelming that overwhelming wall of of shit that Alex is talking about. Those years and years of institutional neglect of a significant portion of our population. Like I think it's it's daunting to look at that as somebody who cares and and will assume and I think rightly that everybody listening cares. It's it's daunting to look at that wall as somebody who cares and say, well, what am I supposed to do? And it's hard to do that and and look at that and not just give up. Um, and so I think just you know, Alex, you know, you you opened on a slightly uh, a negative note there about like, you know, what do you do? I think I think the important thing is. You don't have to educate yourself on hundreds of years of institutionalized racism. You got to do a little bit better. You have to educate yourself. And we're not, you know, it's not to pat ourselves on the back too much. But any sort of step towards educating yourself more and making you a better citizen is, that's a positive thing. That's only a positive yeah, thing. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, it, it's, I could definitely be a little bit hard on myself in terms, just in terms of like my own, like, you know, input and the output that I get from it. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm just someone that wants to understand every as much as there is as possible about you know any issue and before that's why you're so good on reddit oh, thanks <laughs> uh yeah got a huge reddit presence man <laughs> um but yeah i like you know I, I you know when you asked me to you know have this conversation the first thing that you know we were we were going to talk about is like implicit bias training and that was just like the first thing that came to my mind in reaction to like you know, just what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis was just like, okay, we really have to like, what is, what is implicit bias training? I, I heard the phrase and it's just like, it came up in my head. I'm like, there needs to be more of this if there isn't. And so I actually like did some, like some pretty good research just about what police do in terms of training for implicit bias. And, um, I don't know how to characterize it per se. I think like the general vibe that I get it's it's been a it's been a recent development. I think as far as like as 2015 was when you know there was like a bigger push because there were a lot in that year specifically there were a lot of you know nationalized like on the news like police killings of black people and so that was like one of the pushes that people at like were urging for or asking for and so there was a response but it wasn't I like from what I've read and you know learned about the response it doesn't seem to be super comprehensive. Alex, can I interrupt you really quick? Just so I want, I just want to make sure that Kyle and I and the audience are good on just understanding our structure and where we're going. So is it, we're going to talk about sort of implicit bias as like our first topic and then we'll move on to another topic. What What's the roadmap yeah, here? I think I want to, I, I guess I would like kind of show you my roadmap of just like from the start of everything that's happened till now and just like my own personal progression in terms of understanding everything. And the first thing I did did, re did do research on was on implicit bias training. And then following that, it was about just reading about an FBI report that investigated the, you know, kind of strategic infiltration of the police force by like white hate groups such as the KKK and other, you know, other organizations such as this. And then I'd like to kind of just move into maybe talking about like what's being discussed right now, which is like 
defunding the police and what you know what benefits that could have and it's just i want to kind of just preface what i'm about everything i'm about to say is like you know just again i've been doing a lot of reading about this last few weeks and i've had some you know under, like very preliminary understandings of just this whole issue prior to some of the instances that have happened in the last few weeks um but there's it just feels like there's still so many like holes into like information gaps and it's just you know it's this is a bigger topic than any three of us right now and just even it's a bigger topic than anyone that has like a phd in african-american studies or anything like that it, it, it's this is hundreds of years of like neglect that are just that's coming out right now i think you i think you raise a, a good point that's i think important to just kind of reflect on briefly which is just that when you're talking about a system that is pretty fundamentally broken and i think not everybody would agree with that, but I think a, a lot of people are waking up to the notion that, you know, a lot of our institutions are, are just broken. There's a lot of projection. There's not a lot of evidence. There's not a lot of data you can cite that's really persuasive that says, if we do this, this will happen. There's a lot of anchoring to old ways of doing things because we have a long track record of, okay, well, this model of policing, for example, has been around for a long time. We know what happens with that in place. It's impo- it's pretty much impossible in lab conditions to tell yourself what will happen if we do yeah. that. And so I think there's just a natural there's there's a natural, you know, inability to make a really clear conclusion if we do this then this will happen. I think that's okay. I think I I I'm pretty good with accepting that as you know, a condition to this conversation is nobody really knows what will happen if you put in a whole new system of things because there's a lot of unintended consequences. Yeah. I think it's that's a fair point. A lot of I think a lot of people that have when they see a headline like defund the police, they get immediately scared. They're like, "What's who's going to protect us then?" And it's like there's going to be, you know, defund the police doesn't mean like get rid of all the police. It's just taking less of the you know taking making it less of the police's responsibility to be like this one size fits all solution to a lot of like society's problems. Like police are supposed to handle, you know, drug abuse, homelessness, poverty, and it's like their their solution is just to like arrest people or push them into another like you know push the homeless into another subway cart you know it's it's not enough and so like when we say define it's just like we don't need to have the police do as much as they do we don't need them to be as militarized as they are like there are police forces in this country that literally have tanks and like like literally like weapon like military grade military grade weaponry it's it is not necessary you know do you want to get into this like specifically police defunding right now? Because if we are, you posted a really, really good NPR article on Facebook the other day that we should talk about in more detail. But I just want to make sure that like if we're just touching on this, we can come back to it later. But I want to get our, our structure organized because that's a that's really compelling stuff that you posted the other day. Let's just follow the roadmap. I think that's just easier because, yeah, let's follow the roadmap. So. So yeah, first thought was like implicit bias training, and so I've I just did a lot of research about like what that looks like, and if you know police departments across the country are even doing it. And so I remember reading um, a CBS report where they pulled a lot of like they pulled 
the police departments of in every city, in every country, I'm uh, sorry, in every state, and they 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 pulls uh, the police departments of the three largest cities in every state, and then some extra cities as well. So close to you know 180 police departments total did this survey. A lot chose not to submit, saying you know not to reveal any information. A lot did say that they are doing implicit bias training, and then they they submitted what that looks like in their specific department. And so on average, I think what I saw was. Police departments will do about four to eight hours of um, about four four to eight hours of uh, implicit bias training every two to five years. It's very, it's like Alex. I'm gonna interrupt you real quick. I know I'm doing it again. But I just want to make sure we're all totally on the same page on what you're talking about when you say implicit bias training. I'm picturing like I remember reading articles in the early 2000s about video games that police officers would have to play where there's a, a black person and a white person, you know, walking across the street. Do they shoot the black person, white person, both? Is that kind of what a we're talking bit. about? A little bit. That's the crazy that's that's the crazy thing. That's what I was thinking too when I think of these things, but like Yeah. The problem is that these guys like police departments regulate themselves on this stuff and so one what one police department yeah. does could very much be different from what another police department does. Like I know um, one police department, like like in the interview that I saw with these two cops from like Arizona, is that their implicit bias training was having a speaker come in and talk directly to the police force about you know kind of racism and the police like in police enforcement and um, just. That, that was their example of implicit bias training. It could just be like a simple meeting in some places. It could be doing a survey in another. It could just literally be like a one-question survey, and they just claim for it to be, um, you know, like a couple hours or whatever. I think that's the that's one problem right now is that there's no standardized version of this. It's just like there's a lot of police departments in the country that do do some form of it, but it's not very well vetted. It's not very well thought out. And more importantly, it's like they don't know how to measure the success of it because they're not I don't think they're putting in any like considerable effort right now because they don't like because like the very idea of having like an implicit bias test challenges the notion that we have like fair cops. You know, if it's like we if cops have to ask themselves, there's a chance that you're going to find something that you don't want to find. People in general are afraid to confront this about themselves. Like, are you, are you ready to confront like you're like that you might have a bias against a certain group of people no nobody is ready to do that and that's like in the interview that i watched with these two cops like they were their faces were hidden their voices were you know they had that little funny voice change thing and so yeah they had like the darth vader voice and they were just talking about how like they found that the implicit bias training felt like lip service and like the person that the speaker that came through like they went in kind of guns blazing was like you're a racist you're a racist and it's just like this is and it's like like it's just it's not like the police the two cops were like it doesn't really affect you know it doesn't really improve morale to hear this and and it's like it's tough to hear that and like you know be able to like work with it but it's it's not like at this point with you know lives being lost it's not a it's not a matter of like whether or not you feel comfortable or not like sure it might hit morale but if morale drops so that people's lives can continue and not like you don't shoot them or kill them then so be it but it's still like you still do want to consider like how the police force will handle it if they see it as you know lip service then we're not going to get the results that we want it's like it's a very long road to like get the results we want is the problem is a problem that implicit bias training is not effectively standardized or implemented or is a problem that even when implemented implicit bias training is not actually found to be effective. I'm afraid it's a bit of both. 
like the fact that there is no standardized version right now is a problem in itself but then the problem could be that once we do have like a fairly well vetted standardized standardized version it might not be enough you know like people are already saying that it's not enough but i also don't think people know that like not very like it, it, like versions of this aren't very well constructed right now because again the police departments are in charge of creating these tests themselves and administering them, them these tests themselves without any like regulation I would put this on the list, like in the world of options for improving policing practices in the United States, this is a, a low risk, kind of relatively low cost thing. Yes, it will cost a lot to implement sort of standardized nationwide implicit bias testing. Yes, it will cause, you know, problems with police unions, blah, blah, blah. But in the list of options, this feels like pretty low risk, high reward. And if it doesn't turn out to work as effectively as we hoped, it's not a bad thing. It's funny. I'm thinking I'm really struck by this this similarity to um, sort of a pop culture situation, which is the show Mindhunter, which is about it's it's a fictionalized take on the real life behavioral sciences unit within the FBI. And basically, it's this pioneering group that comes up with the idea of criminal profiling. Um, and they were the first people who um, they coined the term serial killer. So basically, they were the first people to say, OK, not what is the physical evidence or what is the circumstantial evidence here but what what is my profile of the person who would have committed this crime and a big part of the duties that they show them performing on the show and in real life was going around the country to various police departments and just training them on how to you know use these criminal profiling techniques and the lack of standardization was just their biggest challenge it was an effective technique there's problems with it but it was a generally effective technique that just needed to be taught appropriately. And I think, you know, I, I know that federalism is a pretty, pretty central tenet to the way a lot of people think about the United States and the way our system works. But part of the problem with, you know, states' rights and local jurisdictions' rights is that, you know, you talk, just go around the country. There's municipal police departments, there's county sheriff's offices, there are state police departments. There's national law enforcement agencies and all of these groups have competing agendas, budgets, you know, jurisdictions like there's just that patchwork of who's in charge of what and what are their goals? What is you know, what's incentivizing them causes things like this to be really hard to, to yeah, put together. There is no real incentive. Like, I mean, the incentive should be to like have a much safer society, but like. You know, a society yeah. where police aren't killing people of all races at such a disproportionate rate. Like, literally a thousand people every year get killed by the police yeah. in the in the U.S. And then three people in the U.K. get killed every year by the police. It's yeah. this is a problem, and they're not you know it. They're not willing to confront this head on. Like the police departments don't have that incentive to because they're their own like they're they're pretty much their own business. You know, they're their own entity. Yeah. Part of part of the issue here is that it's it's I think difficult to draw this line to a police department but i i would argue that you know less violence towards the communities that police departments are supposed to serve should i would think be mutually reinforcing and cause less violence towards police officers from the communities that they're supposed to be serving so i think if you frame this as sort of a way to have improved relationships with your communities and a way for cops to feel safer, 
that's a good way of sort of, you know, having people's self-interest, which is natural and human. Like it's important that we, you know, understand that all these people who are acting within these systems are human and naturally self-interested. Um, that would be a helpful way of framing it. I understand that that's hard and it's sort of a second order effect, but I, I think like, you know, sort of trying to, trying to draw that out, it, it only seems logical. I, I think it only seems logical to me that if the communities that are served by these police departments feel safer around the police officers, there's less chance of violence towards those police officers. And that's a positive thing. For yeah, everyone. for sure. I think it's just the police forces in general has like this identity. They want to believe that they're like this just presence in society. And then again, to unleash this, like to really open up this can of worms and really dive into it could, you know, reveal itself to be, you know, not as great as it, th- it wants to think it is. And I think that's what really led me into like the, like the next topic that I researched about, which was just like all the, you know, the presence of like real racist, like hate, you know, white supremacists, extremists that are in our police force. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I don't know if there's anything else about police implicit bias training that you wanted to ask, you know, or just like follow up on, but um, anything at all? Not for me. That just seems like if we're going to talk about ways to redistribute funds, this seems like low-hanging fruit. And at the very least, it seems like something with really, like you said, Mike, like pretty limited potential for negative consequences. So, and regardless of how effective it might be, like having the data points to assess that is important. But I think that's a good point to end that discussion and a show of faith on everybody's part a good step yeah it's a good yeah. first step for sure and right. just like i think what people are doing right now as solutions like i know in new york today they just passed in the state assembly this law it's it's a 50 it's called 50a basically it protects like police transgressions and misconduct and keeps it as private instead of public and so they just repealed that today so now police trans- transgressions can be public and you know it could be more public scrutiny and stuff like that and i think that's great but that's also like it's too reactive, you know, like that means like if we only do that, then the problem will continue to persist. And then we can be like, okay, we saw him do that shitty thing. Now we can like do something about it. Whereas like, I think with implicit bias training or. I will say though, I think that there's, so in my industry, so I'm in financial services, I have to register with a self-regulatory body. Um, and with that comes the, the understanding that if I commit any securities violations, my record is public forever. Um, and I think it's been shown and I'm not, I don't have any data to, to show right now, but my understanding is that it's been shown that that has positive consequences because you don't have this moral hazard yeah. issue where people think they're going to get away with it. I think it's people know that there's a light being shined on what's happening and that has the power to alter behaviors going. That's totally fair. There's plenty of perverse, there's plenty of perverse outcomes from anything you do. And there's perverse outcomes from something like that. But I think by and large that has the ability to shape people's behavior. Yeah, I know. I agree. That's a good, that's a good point. Like just having it public is a deterrent itself, but I don't think it necessarily changes a person's like attitude. It just like, it just, it just keeps the hate bottled inside. And then who knows, like it might show up down the line and they don't give a shit about the consequences. Cause like that hate could be so like blinding and overwhelming that 
they they you know they do a terrible thing and so i again i think it's a good step and like it already it's already a thing that happens in a lot of states new york is just behind on it for some reason um and so they've repealed it today but like an implicit bias training could be a net good next step in terms of just being more proactive and preventative rather than reactive um but yeah the next thing i did research about was just like like, I don't even remember how I came across this. I just, I think I saw an article about it and then I just did more digging. And so I read this whole, like, paper from, like, like Lewis and Clark Law School for some reason. Just, like, details, like, all the police, like, transgressions relating to, like, just, um, you know, sending racist email, like, you know, racial slurs, contain, like, emails containing racial slurs, saying things on record, like, audio recordings. Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. <laughs> it's, like, there are, like, legit hundreds. And so, basically, the, uh, this... This essay is just talking about how the FBI in 2006 did a, rep- um, you know, investigation on the potential infiltration of, you know, the police force by the KKK and other hate groups. And they determined that it was like a threat to, you know, an imminent threat to national security. And then they kind of just left it at that. Like there was no like, like action taken by federal or state governments to like, you know, do anything about improving our vetting process to make sure these guys aren't coming into the force. And I think it's just because the police, if you look at the history of the police, like they've always kind of just been like this, like historically it hasn't looked good for them. Like they started out as what, like slave patrollers, like trying to find escaped slaves. And then they, you know, they enforced a lot of like Jim Crow laws. They enforced a lot of like, what was it? Like they arrest, like they're the people that arrested Rosa Parks. You know, these are like police traditionally have not been on the side that we wanted them to be on. And I think that just like historically just translates to where they are now, where like there could still be that legacy of racism at like a lot of like at almost every level of police enforcement. And so what this like essay was saying is that there could be hundreds, if not thousands of police, not just individual officers, but also like chiefs of police that have like infiltrated the police force and have remains there and it was maybe it wasn't strategic at first but like the more these guys started you know hanging out with each other they're like oh you're a racist i'm a racist too oh you should go you should be a cop and it was like oh that's just like that's how it kind of just you know that's how it could have started and so yeah there's um I, i i got like in one of these like articles i read there was a cop that openly admits that he's a part of the league of the south which is like a well-established well-known like hate group and the police force knew this about this guy and they didn't do anything about it they kept him in his town in alabama which is like pretty like diverse in terms of like just it has a lot of black people there's a lot of black people there and now they know there's openly a guy that's a part of like a hate group and there's nothing nothing happens to him like he got a promotion after that and so like and when they look, when they're, when like the police chief was interviewed as to like why that was the case, they're like, well, you know, we thought his association, his affiliation with this group didn't impede his ability to, you know, be a cop. And it's like, well, this is, that's the problem in itself. Like how big of a problem is this across the country? And so like in this essay, there's just like, a, it's just a huge compilation, like across the country, even in like, you know, progressive cities, it's a problem. And so, yeah, that's just like the next thing I kind of dived into there. I think one thing I would say, just I think it's important we just note, you know, I, you were talking about cops being on the wrong side of history. I think it's I think it's important to just contextualize that a little bit that the police the police act as a tool of their jurisdiction, whether it's the state or the federal government or whatever the local government, and 
I think it's I think it's just it's important to understand that, you know, when they were told to go catch slaves, it's because that was the policy of, you know, the state or whatever jurisdiction they were in doesn't excuse those actions. But it's important to just I think, you know, it's important to think about the context of of which laws they're enforcing. And when there's problems with the law, there's problems with law enforcement. I think we would agree, though, that the law has come a long way. Things like sort of decriminalizing or, you know, limiting mandatory minimum sentencing um, for, you know, nonviolent drug offenses, that's an indication that the law is getting better. And so better law needs to bring along better law enforcement with it. So I think that those two things kind of go hand in hand, and it's not fair purely to lay the blame on, I know it's not what you're doing, but play, you know, lay that at the feet of the police. Um, but I think it's interesting. You bring up the point about, you know, that police officer who, you know, his his boss said or his chief said, you know, it doesn't impede his ability to be a police officer. I had a conversation. I don't know. Whenever the Ralph Northam thing happened in Virginia, where the gov- I think it's the governor of Virginia. Um, there were pictures of him from um, from graduate school. I think it was medical school in blackface. And And basically what the conversation I was having was. Being wearing blackface at one time in your life does not make you a bad person. It does not make you a racist. It could. And in certain cases, it is indicative of a pattern of being a bad person or being a racist. It doesn't necessarily make you a bad person, in my opinion. But in a situation where you are seeking a public office to enforce important rules, to make important rules if you're a lawmaker... And especially when you're making or enforcing rules for people who are black, there are plenty of other good candidates who didn't do blackface. And that, and this is my biggest problem is the working in a police department. Now, I don't know about a being a rural police officer in Alabama, but I'll say in my area, you know, working as a police officer, they get paid very well. Their benefits are excellent. Their retirements are excellent. There are plenty of people who would line up to take a job as a police officer, even understanding the risks, who don't belong to a hate yeah. group, who don't harbor these feelings. So I don't think this is a situation where we have to say, we need these people. There are other better people out there who we can find. Like it, it's, there are plenty of people who looking at, you know, weighing the bent costs and benefits would love to serve their communities as police officers who don't have hate in their hearts. I, I don't think this is the point you're trying to make. And I'd really like to read this study that you're talking about because it sounds compelling and it sounds well-researched and <laughs> compared to me where I don't have any evidence of this other than like anecdotal experience and like general optimism. It's like, I just don't think, again, I know this is not what you're, you're trying to say i don't think that like the majority of police officers are you nazis or belong to hate groups and to your point mike like there are so many people that that don't partake in behaviors or patterns of thinking like that 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 police are our streets and keep us safe like but like you're right like you know certainly and it sounds like there's very clear evidence for this like in a in an organization or a series of organizations as large as American policing is like <laughs> you have to be really careful about screening because like just from a, a, a pure number standpoint, if half a percent of Americans 
belong to a hate group. And I don't know what I'd made that up. My, my point is, even if it's a very, very small number, when applied to a, an organization that's hundreds of thousands of people strong, like uh, uh, pretty soon you end up with an alarming number of people that think that way, maybe selfishly want to stipulate <laughs> vocally that like, I do not believe that that, that represents like even a, even close to oh, a no. majority. I, would, I wouldn't say that at all. You know, I think I think what's really important is, you know, just remembering the amount of power vested in these various police agencies. Um, you know, police officers, generally speaking, have the right to carry a loaded firearm and to discharge that firearm at their discretion with a very high bar to indict them, to prosecute them and, and ultimately to convict them for using that weapon. That's a responsibility that, in my opinion, they need. I do believe that. I do believe that the police need to have that right and that responsibility. But that is a very hefty, important responsibility. And it needs to be, you know, it needs to be wielded very carefully and by people who we trust. In the same way that being, a, you know, a heart surgeon, it's you have great power over the people on your surgical table. You have the ability to, you know, give life or death to that person. You need that responsibility. I think we need you to have that responsibility. And there needs to be a high bar to question the decision-making of a surgeon who's, you know, performing open-heart surgery. Because we need to protect them and make sure that they can do their jobs appropriately. But at the same time, for me to feel confident in them wielding that power, we really need to trust that they meet a high standard. And it's not asking anywhere near too much that they not be associated with the hate group. I, I, yeah. I can't imagine any any reasonable person would disagree with that. I think if you ask anybody, pro-police, pro-whatever, like I don't think anyone believes that people associated with hate groups should be legally law enforcing law, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I think most people would agree with that. I think the reason why no action was taken is the same reason why not as much action was taken with implicit bias training. Because again, if you do this vetting, if you like vet every single cop in the country and you find out they're out of the 800,000 policemen in this country, or um, you find out that even like two or 3% of that were associated with the hate groups, that, that begs the question, how could you let them come in? Like, how could you be so reckless? That lets, that is like, it translates to like the number of lives lost because of this, because you were so reckless. And so it's, again, it's, there's no, it's like, they don't ask, I don't think they ask those questions. I've been, I've actually, I tried calling my state center. I talked with someone on their staff about this. I tried, you know, I, I messaged like a, like a few advocacy groups just to like have a conversation about this. I don't think it's like the main point that people are trying to do right now. Cause you're right. I don't think it is a majority. It's not even like a significant minority of like more than 10% probably barely even 5% if we're like being honest, but I still think it is a problem just because and I think the article touched the article that I read, the essay that I read touches on just like, if you have like this presence and like, you know, there are a lot of, you know, cops that are, might not be racist, but they're surrounded by racist cops. And then it, it becomes yeah. like, it becomes like a defining aspect of the police culture they work in. And so, so that's like a really important thing that I think, I want to make, I, I'm glad you touched on that because I wanted to make sure we talked about this is there's, there's two, there's two issues at, at, you know, kind of stake here. One is 
when a police officer becomes a police officer, you know, there is an, there's a background check performed to make sure that they are not in a hate group. That I think it's clear we agree any reasonable person would agree that that's something that's important. But we also need to consider the degree to which police departments, as they're currently structured, are, you know, they're, they're subject to or vulnerable to radicalization. And that's a really important thing to think about is you can get people who come into the police department, you know, either as, you know, a normie or as potentially somebody who's vulnerable to radicalization and they enter an environment that is really conducive to that. That's a problem. And part of the problem, I would argue, is that there's an attitude in this in this country where the police departments are considered by the police and by the communities that they're supposed to serve as being adversarial to those communities. They're supposed to protect and serve those communities, not police and be against that group. This is not the military. This is a public service that's performed for the citizens of our country. And I think where that attitude has slipped into something more adversarial, you and you have a lot of people who are young, they're male, they tend to be of similar backgrounds, you end up in a really good brew for people to be well, radicalized. Are you done with that thought, Mike? I, I, I think, to me, what's more concerning, like... You can you can have the same effect without having people that are like card carrying members of hate groups and like you I I feel like probably like your mindset can change if you're a part of a system that promotes like less overt kinds of racism like I, did either of you read um talking to strangers by Malcolm Gladwell. So he, he goes really into depth on the Kansas City style, um, basically like the precursor to like stop and frisking. And that like has become, in its inception, it wasn't so much, but has become like a very kind of like racially, um, like racially, uh, what's the right word? Um, racially changed, motivated. motivated. Like that has become a form yeah. of kind of racism in our policing um and so like I, let's say i joined the police and i'm not a form of i'm not in a hate group i'm not a, a racist but if that's what i'm being trained to do um and i'm like enacting a policy that through no fault of my own or maybe many of the people that i'm working with you can become kind of indoctrinated yeah. in a culture that is is more accepting of like these kinds of less obvious forms of racial profiling and, and just general racism. So like, um, at least for me, like some of that kind of stuff is potentially even more problematic. Cause I think that if you, if you looked into it and again, I don't have facts to support this, but like that kind of stop and frisk and like those kinds of that kind that yep. Kansas city style of policing is something that's been implemented in a lot of cities in states probably um but and just to tie it back to what you were saying like i think that that kind of behavior can come in multiple forms like either on the surface like soup like overtly and uh like blatantly racist and sometimes in more subtle ways so um i don't know if that's like a, a real point or not but i just wanted to to illustrate or, or point out that like there's more than one 
way to think about it. Well, I also, Kyle, you raise a good point about sort of overt hate versus sort of more covert forms of hate. I think I think it's important. I'm sure you guys have noticed this, that a lot of sort of traditional symbols of certain political groups, um, sort of like just movements, ideologies have been co-opted by these sort of pseudo hate groups. And in a lot of cases by the police. I mean, you know, the thin blue line flag has become this big sort of flashpoint where people who, and I, I'm, I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, um, but it's that black and gray kind of flag with the blue line in it. And it's on a lot of bumper stickers. And I think it's safe to say that if you ask any person with that bumper sticker, they'll tell you it's simply there to support the police. But that has become co-opted by hate groups. It's a fairly common hate symbol at this point. And this starts to get you into why this topic is so tricky is, you know, there's not a lot of police officers who show up at the office with their clan robes on, even if there is a certain, <laughs> and I know, They're, and Alex, you, I'm sure you have more They might not be this. showing up in their robes, but they will be showing up with tattoos. That's like the big thing in the art. <laughs> but, th- but, so this is, but this is what I'm saying. Like you can, you can, you, you know. The big, the big obvious, you know, you get my point, like the big sign over my head that says, hey, I am an overt racist. It doesn't, it's, it's not something that people are dumb enough to, to wear very often, but some of these sort of co-opted or borderline symbols are becoming more popular as ways of expressing, you know, a pattern of beliefs that are not consistent with good policing. Um, but which are much more publicly acceptable and which understandably are really hard to legislate as, you know, the the police chief, as the local government. Like, you know, when you find out that, you know, Lieutenant so-and-so has the thin blue line flag on their car, how can you credibly say anything other than that they're supporting the police? But there is a really logical argument that that's a sign that they're being radicalized. Yeah. I think it's just the tolerance that we have or, you know, there should be like a zero tolerance for any hint or like, like suspicion that one might be affiliated with these groups. But it's like, it's not easy to kind of go in there and like, you know, have these conversations and go through that process, you know, like they'll, they'll say it's, you know, they can argue free speech and like they're entitled to that. Um, They can use that to protect their, like keep their status, but it's. Though there are plenty of places where constitutionally protected free speech are not applicable. And, you know, I think in the same way that we don't allow police officers to slap bumpers, you know, political bumper stickers on their cruisers, you know, having a tattoo of a hate group. I, you know, I'm sorry if you're a reformed member of a hate group, you're not in my police. You're not welcome in my police department. I, I don't I don't care. There's plenty of other people who can join the police department who were never part of that and who don't have that. You know, I would I generally agree with that. Maybe in the city. In small rural towns, I don't know, man. I think that that might be I I don't have that data. Like I don't I think the perception of the police right now is like an all time low, like public trust and security in the police is low and it's just I, I was talking to a friend recently just about like how less and less good people join the army or join any sort of like public you know security force because the reputation has like soured like all it used to be that good people would join the army like way back in the day like 50s 60s the smartest people would go into like military in some capacity but now the smartest people smartest people don't do that because they can make good money and not 
be you know in any line of fire whereas before they would like it seems like the best money was in military in some capacity it would like it would be good career growth but you would also be in a position where like you could get shot and so um it could be the same thing with the police you know like it does have great benefits but like do you want to like you know public perception is not no longer on your side especially like right now and it was already kind of failing before because like what 2015 was the last time there were like multiple like shootings of black people at like very similar you know junctures of time it's just um i don't know like maybe in the city like some there would be good people that are looking for a better opportunity in life and being a police would be one but in a rural town i don't know i think i disagree with you on that i think in general i want to be careful about implying that we think that the general quality of our police officers and like armed like our our army is is declining because i think i see your point but i don't think our our military or police probably lack in terms of qualified good people as you say to to staff them i would i would argue too that the model of the military and police that alex you are sort of advocating for there is problematic in its own way in very serious ways which is that you end up with sort of an aristocratic military or police class who do not look like think like or act like the people that they're supposed to be serving and i think that that is a positive outcome of you know kind of changing perceptions of the police and the military it's pretty common from generation to generation outside of the sort of professional military and police class for you know groups that are you know rising in america immigrant groups to join the military oh yeah i'm i'm sorry i I don't think i was trying to come off like that no i'm not no 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 i know you're not but i'm saying i think i think it's important to know that like there's some really good things about that you know it's really good if there are more black and brown police officers and no i and i I know you're not saying that i'm clarifying because i know what you meant i think it's really there's some really good things about that. And I do I do have faith that given the appropriate set of, you know, kind of incentives, we can get the right there is enough of a backlog of people who would be excited to take on those jobs that we don't have to worry about running out of quality officers because we've rooted out the bad actors. Okay, that's fair. I just like I wasn't I was never knocking just like, you know, the like I like I I want I, like even now like right now like perception like a lot of like left leaning people would skewer me for saying that I still think there are good people in the police force but I still do think there are good people that join that want to do good but I think it's just I've been trying to push myself to like kind of speak of the police force as like an overall institution and focus less on like individual people and that's just like that's that's becoming very hard for like you know people including myself to really like have a conversation about because i went to the pro i went to a protest last week and i saw a lot of black cops and i couldn't even imagine to being in the position that they're in right now which is like kind of just confront two aspects of their lifestyle uh their lives you know their job versus you know their race is who they are and so um yeah i know i i, I get what you're saying and I, I do apologize if that's like you know no, no, no. I, in some I, some way I, you don't I, have to yeah, apologize i want to clarify alex i don't want to apply in any way that you're saying something bad about, um, you know, the way that the police force is being shaped. I think it's important. I, I don't know. Maybe it is an unpopular opinion or it's becoming this way. But I just think that, like, I think that in general, 
we have good people and that we the the police for it's it's very difficult i think given the way that people talk about issues today like it's it's so divisive it's very hard to to say that you believe that uh like it's hard to say that you think that the police as an institution need to be reformed without sounding like you're implying that the individuals that comprise it are all by definition bad or or vice versa it's really hard to support individual police officers without coming across as as supporting an institution that in general like very desperately needs reform i think that we've like it's hard to this like the critical mass of like the hun- like hundreds of years of history are shaping how a, a body this big functions and even if the majority of the people inside that body be, you know are of a certain way it's hard it's so hard to undo the critical mass of a of a body this large and so i think <laughs> again going back to the fact that, like talking about these things has become extremely politicized and like at the root of it like this isn't a political issue but it's been politicized to the point where it's hard to talk about the police in general and individual police officers without grouping them in one bucket or another so i want to make it clear that i understand that you're trying to do just that yeah it's it is unfortunate that this has become you know super like just a political talking point at this point to you know just further divide people on the issue you know it's hard to have like a straight up honest conversation about just the institution versus the individuals that make up the institution because they're both you know, like it's individuals do make up this institution of the like the police force and of course obviously the police force is filled with these individuals so it's like um yeah they're mutually reinforcing as part of i think what this conversation reveals is you know you do have to talk about the bad actors like the clear bad actors within this because they are poison within the system and they poison other individuals and the system poisons individuals and it, and it reinforces itself. And so it's naturally difficult. And, you know, I'm sure if for whatever reason, some big national network happens to be listening to our podcast, they can pull out plenty of clips that will sound really snappy and make us look like a-holes. And, you know, I think we have to be willing to accept that because, you know, we're trying to wrestle with a difficult topic. Um, and this is very complicated. I think, you know, the political point is really interesting, too, because I think fundamentally, I think, I, I'm going to put words in the entire nation's mouth, always a risky proposition. I think we would all agree that our nation is formed for the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not for any of the things that accomplish that. Like, our government is not an end in itself, nor is the police, nor is, you know, local city councils, nor is the military. Those things are means to an end. Nobody cares fundamentally about the police. Nobody cares fundamentally about the U.S. Treasury. We care in those things about those things in as much as they help all of us in our pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. That's the point. And it's not political to want people to have access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Whether you think the best way to help them with that is through a big empowered police department or a small disempowered police department or no police or whatever, like those are genuinely, those conversations are genuinely worth having because they're not easy to solve. But I think the end point we're, we're trying to solve for it's, it simply isn't political. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. But unfortunately, people, you know, people will make it so. And, like... Well, <laughs> it doesn't help when our leaders are the ones doing that, right? Like, that's... Oh, yeah. That's how it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's both sides, like, to be clear. I want to make it, yeah, like, extremely I, crystal clear that both ends of the political spectrum weaponize these kinds of issues for their own gains. Yeah. I will also note that we do have... I will just say, to be clear, there is one person who is worse than all others in terms of that, and that's our president. But yes, I take your point, but I do want to be clear that there is still an offender-in-chief in stoking animosity for He seems to do gain. it yeah. with an intentionality that's frightening, but I think that it would be a mistake to to ignore the fact that it's not. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And another thing that we've incentivized, it's about, it's not about individual actors as much as it is about incentives and the ecosystem of the modern kind of news cycle has incentivized yep. that. It's, it's not about one or two bad actors because bad actors will always be bad actors. It's a question of whether you set them up to succeed or fail. Yeah. This is, this is like, this could have been like an easy slam dunk to like really unite the country. I mean, even during, during the coronavirus, it could have been the same thing. But uh, this guy just, he keeps missing yeah. these layups. These are like significant layups. But like... Not missing. Yeah. These are not misses. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> but I don't know. So yeah, I guess last point was, the, <laughs> I guess the thing right now is just the whole defunding police thing that... You know, there's being more like I don't know if you guys saw, but Minneapolis is like taking some pretty significant steps to do so, and I think it's tell us about it, Alex, because I find this to be just endlessly fascinating. <sighs> Man, I don't both both as an actual concept and as a political ploy, because uh, there's there's a ooh boy, this is an interesting gambit. Again, the point is to not get rid of the police. It's just to like kind of liberate the police of like the various burdens that are being placed on them it's like police are like teachers like teachers are they no longer just teach they're like protectors they're like social workers they they're they're like they're really you know you know that better than most yeah I, add, I as was, alex has spent yeah. several years teaching and i'm gonna say this um, straight up in an underserved and i'm community. gonna straight say straight up i was super unqualified to do half of those things outside of i was barely qualified yeah, right. to do the thing that i was hired for and a great example of somebody who who is an individual actor who had good intentions but was placed in a system that set him up to fail yeah it, it was not perfect yeah, it was like that's the same thing with cops like you can have the most kindest the kindest person the most well-intentioned but they fall into this position where they're not set up for you know to do the job that they thought they would be doing then this is it's it's why we are where we are like the police are supposed to like somehow be the solution to homelessness and drug abuse and domestic violence there's a like like we need i think Defunding the police is a great first step. It takes less, it puts less money and like, you know, this very powerful, very militarized like unit, like force in this country and puts it, it, it can shift, they can use that money and shift it to the community. And that can look, that could look like so many different things, like more social, actually having more social workers in a school or having more after school programs, like just, you know, like the school that I taught in, like, I, like it barely, like I had some after school programs, but it was tough because what, like, how long did it take for you guys to get to the schools that you like that you went to, like from where you lived? Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes, yeah. yeah. Twenty minutes walking for me. You know how long it took for my kids to get to their school? It took them an hour by bus, 
and then they had to like they couldn't stay because their parents couldn't pick them up and so like a lot of the issues that like vex the community like black community specifically is just i think a lot of just lack of overall opportunities and then also just biases within the system as well but i think if you like start with one you can eventually pierce the other um but yeah i can you know there's a lot to kind of say about that but you know just i think right now it's a good first step i think putting the community like empowering community is important right now yeah i agree alex i think one thing that's interesting is that in my own research of defunding specifically um because at least for me like having not known much about this kind of idea prior to like last week I had a very early misconception of what I was hearing. Like I was hearing people yell defund the police. And I think my reaction was similar to a lot of people's in that like, we can't get rid of the police. And it, like, that's not at all what this is about. Um, I, what's interesting. And now that I've spent some time looking into it is that I think, and I don't want to speak for all police. And a lot of the things that I've looked at, police are very welcome to this kind of, implementation like there was i think it was a chief of police in i don't it was dallas i don't want to it was somewhere in texas and he was saying police are in charge of homelessness he goes and then he said you know we've got a bad stray dog problem here he's like we've got police chasing dogs like it's the police are being asked to do so much and i'll i'll borrow a quote from and but they're not they're not it's not that they're not able to be qualified to do it they just haven't been given the training it's out of scope it's out of scope work and it's and it needs to be <laughs> yeah and like give it's like um you're just not being given the right tools for the job imagine if i gave you uh, imagine mike if i gave you a hammer and taught you how to hit nails and then i said can you go fix my sink it's just it's fucking absurd um and you'd want to have a plumber do that job right like that's a really simplified way of of thinking about it but like you know who's most frustrated in that scenario well First of all, the person whose sink is still broken at the end of the day, but you know, but the person who you just asked to do that job is going to be frustrated. And I imagine, and I don't want to say that all all law enforcement officers feel this way, but I think probably many of them do. And at the end of the day, police defunding really what it, like it's it's like the the phrase itself is negative. It's saying we're taking money it's away from our branding, police. really bad branding. It, it's, it's really giving money. And it's, it's taking a, we listened to a podcast the other day, Dax talked to a guy who wrote a book called Upstream. It's taking money away from addressing the symptoms of a disease and looking at the upstream root of the problems. What if instead of having police officers um, try to tackle the distribution of, of drugs and why don't we spend some money kind of tackling why people start to get into drugs in the first place and like everyone benefits from it. Um, I don't know. I think it's this is another one where I think if you if you really talked to people and depoliticized it and talked about the nuts and bolts of like where money is being allocated, I think most people are probably in agreement on this. Yeah. At the root at the core of it. No, I I agree. It's um I, I was taking uh, speaking with a few people that are kind of, you know, I kind of I think I'm more left leaning, probably am, and I was speaking with someone who's like probably more a little bit more right-leaning about this stuff and just trying to explain like when they heard defund the police they're like we can't do that and i'm just like no listen 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 it's not get rid of the police it's just reinvest the money you know like why do we need more policemen with like military grade grade weaponry when we can just get more like i don't know social workers we can get more like community like what was obama again a community activist or a, 
a community organizer. organizer, which again, I don't even, I think he's the only person that's ever had that position. I've never actually met a community organizer. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, just like more people that just want to like do direct good in the community. And it's like, maybe the police could actually do that themselves. Like we, like instead of just like showing up with guns, like they can just maybe get training on to like have a dialogue with like a family that is going like, you know, with the member with someone who has a drug problem, you know, rather than just arrest them, you know, like it's just, like that could actually that actually is not I just talked that out of my ass but that's actually not the worst idea because it, like, at the same time it could rebuild trust between you know afflicted communities and the police if they just show up and like are willing to have an open conversation and dialogue and not even bring their guns to the table then that's that's better do do you mind if I insert here quickly Alex Yeah yeah I read I can't remember if you posted this or not but it referenced a kind of like a case study of this very concept. I think it was in Camden, New Jersey, which like historically yes. has had yeah. an absurdly high it seems like you know what I'm talking yep. about. So if you wanna if you want to get into it, no, 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 you no. take the you, reins. You go. But they were saying that it they didn't even it wasn't defunding. I think a better term would be refunding. Cause I think no one like they did lose some officers because they basically rebooted the system and anyone that wanted to, their job back filled out some kind of like fifty page application and almost all of them were reinstated and they're like the biggest thing they did one that i could really get behind was they changed the incentives so like an officer was no longer measured by how many arrests they made it's kind of amazing if you think about it like if you just change the incentives the way people change their behavior but to get back to your point they the like the overall shift in their mindset was that we're not warriors we're guardians and they increased like how much they would just send people into neighborhoods to get to know the people that they were protecting and guarding. And the statistic that they used to indicate progress, I thought was so cool. So they were talking about um, like uh, basically like solve percentage of open cases. And like oftentimes solve percentage is related, like really, really closely correlated with community trust. So like if someone's bike is stolen, and you go into a community and you start knocking on doors and asking, like, do you know who stole this bike? If you don't trust the people that are there to protect you, you're not going to say anything. And so cases go unsolved. And I, I don't, I, it's, I'm not going to cite it specifically, but in like a five to six year period after implementation of this strategy, they went from like solving 16% of their cases to like 60%. Wow. And it was just like a huge increase in, solve percentage which correlates strongly with a huge increase in community trust and like that had nothing to do with defunding the police it was reallocating resources and i think if we could call this whole thing reallocation it would have such a better spin it's, it's too many words right, man. it's just too many, too many uh, syllables yeah, I think I think we also, you know, this is probably not a conversation for today, but like this is closely related to incarceration. And, you know, you think about the overall budget of the United States and we're spending so much, you know, of our money addressing the symptoms rather than the root causes. And you think about other, you know, policing models in other countries. And I know that, you know, there's a there's a real sport in making fun of, you know, European sort of pseudo socialist states. It's they're kind of easy, fluffy targets. But, you know, you look at the way policing is done in some of these Nordic countries in the United Kingdom. They police very differently. Your typical patrol officer walking a beat does not carry 
a service rifle or a service revolver or a service weapon. That's not how that works. They walk around and they walk a beat. And that sends a very different message than an officer walking around armed to the teeth. And so I think, you know, in one sense, what you guys are saying, just fundamentally sort of rethinking the process of what a police officer is, is beneficial both in terms of dollars and cents. And you can find the budget for getting more counseling services purely by reducing the number of people you lock up. Just start there. Lock up fewer people and suddenly suddenly you've got a lot of money to to pay these you know to pay for counseling services and to get somebody to do welfare checks who's not a police officer police officer should not be conducting a welfare check you should have a you know a, a counselor doing that and the, the other thing that i would you know i would note that i think is interesting in this in this case is police unions i would i would liken them to the mlb players union in that they have grown so powerful that I think in a lot of cases they no longer represent the needs and thoughts of the average uh, member of their union. You know, the MLB Players Union is currently <laughs> committing uh, baseball suicide. It's it's going through an act of self-immolation right now that is completely unnecessary and doesn't reflect what most of the players would want. But they're doing it because they become arrogant, fat, and happy because they have guaranteed contracts. And in a similar way. The various, you know, policemen's uh, societies and unions throughout the United States, and, and and they're not. This is not an anti-union stance. It's it's just a right sizing of the unions, and it's a reconsideration of how these unions are set up. I don't know how because I'm no expert on the topic of unions, but I think a big part of this problem is you have a force of of lobbyists who control a lot of money and who can get any political official basically banned for life from local and state government the moment they propose cutting budgets to the police. And that's a problem. Because even if we don't think that defunding the police is a good idea, it's a worthwhile thought experiment. You have to concede that it's at least something worth thinking about. You have to say to yourself, as a as a person who who is committed to finding the best solution for a problem and this is something i do at work every day and i'm sure you guys do too hey what would happen if we got rid of this thing what would happen if we committed all of our resources to this thing as a thought experiment and then find the right spot in the middle and that even contemplating that publicly is career is political career suicide in large part because of the power of these unions it's a problem i mean to, to going back to what you were saying earlier, if we just stopped stops putting in, so stop stuffing more people in jails and prisons, you know who you have to face with that, right? It's not the police union; it's the fucking prison industrial complex, like for profit private prisons. That's how they make their dough. That's literally fucking that that warden from Shawshank Redemption, and like like literally that guy. All right, they all like. How can you be so obtuse? Get, get, get stop stuffing people in prisons. <laughs> A week in the box. <laughs> I just, I just don't think anybody can make a credible argument that there's not enough tax dollars to go around. I don't. I, I understand that the United States is in a budget deficit. This is still the richest country in the world, though. Economists, you know, up our butt about that. Um, you know, if we really want to play that game, interest rates are so low that we can finance our debt at a very low rate. So, like, we can take on more debt. But there is enough money going from taxpayers to the state local, federal governments. There is. I think we could agree on that. 
the, the, the going through the exercise of thinking about where it goes is thorny. It's complicated, and it will take generations to right size, even with really earnest effort. But it's it's insanely important. Yeah. Oh, I think I, I just wanted like just with everything that's happened in the last few weeks, um, I feel like this country has hit like a point of no return. Like I don't think when this is all said and done, whenever that is, who knows? Like the whole like civil rights marches lasted like a whole year. Who knows how long this could last? Especially with like quarantine and lockdown and the current recession, it's like this could like this kind. I think this country has hit like a breaking point with what they're willing to put up with, especially right now because a lot of people are frustrated with how things have been going. That's like this country, like the police force, it's not. I don't think it's going to look the same when it's all said and done. If there's going to be something different, and hopefully that difference is significant and truly helpful. Yeah, Alex, I I want to take a... I agree with you there. I, I'm also encouraged generally. I think that... Like, this, the fact that we're having this conversation makes me feel very optimistic about... Like, the, like the process that takes time, but it makes me optimistic that, like, these things can change if enough people care about it and vote and incentivize people our politicians to make meaningful change. That's how this works. And it's a big system and it's a big machine. So it might, might take time, but I'm, I'm generally optimistic about it. And I'd like to take a second to say a big part of what makes me optimistic is um, like, I've been really impressed with you specifically and the way that you have been handling all this. Like I have really enjoyed seeing the, I look forward to seeing what you have to say about things on your Facebook and you've, I mentioned it briefly earlier, like you posted a link to a really, really good NPR article um, that was really informative and uh, comprehensive. I, I really enjoyed that. And the fact that you wanted to talk about this stuff with us now. Um, so just just in general, like, thanks for like being the way that you have been about this and, and sharing what you know about it. Because I think like that's the way that these things eventually change is by like... Like the, the, the biggest tool that we have is information and you've done a really good job of, of seeking out the right stuff and, and, and sharing it. So that's my two cents on you. And Kyle, I want to echo your note of optimism because I think, I think that this, this movement is, is shaping up to be a pretty similar to the Me Too movement in that there are excesses, there are overreaches, there's simplification by ideologues on both sides of, of a difficult issue. But by and large, what's happening is people who were not aware of a problem are becoming more acutely aware of it, are thinking about it more. Scumbags are coming out of the woodwork. We're seeing that they are scumbags. Good people are getting a better platform to prove themselves and how good they are. Allies are you know, being encouraged to come out. This is good. This is a really good thing. This is a, this is a reckoning that's been needed for a long time. And I think, I think, you know, to come back to what you're saying, Kyle, about Alex, I think Alex has always had a a real social justice bent to his way of thinking. And I want to be clear to our listeners that, you know, Alex has been thinking about these things for a long time with great compassion and intelligence. And it's really important. And it's encouraging. And it's, you know, Alex is just our buddy. Like, it's 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 cool what we have access to this kind of resource somebody who's so knowledgeable and thoughtful and you're just like our pal we didn't even have to call up 1-800 wikipedia 
um, you know, there's people all around us who are thinking about these topics really seriously and, you know, just asking is, is really cool. Yeah. I appreciate that guys. Really. I, um, I don't, you know, I just, I, I, I honestly kind of just see myself as someone that's like super ignorant that just wants to like listen and learn as much as I can. That's, that's, your gift. that's the point. But that's like, kind of your gift. Just, <laughs> uh, it's just, I'm, I don't know. I really, anyways, yeah, I just, <laughs> yeah, no, just trying to like get all the information that's out there, even with people that I probably would disagree with. I've been listening to like a lot of like black conservatives and kind of just their viewpoint on like racism and what you know what they think is the cause of like a lot of things and they you know it's been interesting like the last few days i've been just watching a lot of interviews and reading like texts about you know how they feel about the george floyd the george floyd killing and it's you know it's just i think now more than ever it's important to have like a dialogue not just with your buddies or like you know your friends or whatever you know it's important to like speak with everybody every now like every now that i see on people people on facebook posting how they're like i blocked 20 people today and it's like well so you're just like gonna let 20 people like live in you know their own thoughts and i don't i'm not even i like for a minute i thought about saying ignorance but and maybe it is ignorance but you don't really know a person until you like kind of develop that conversation like i i don't know if you guys seen this but it's on a lot of comedians have posted this story about dave chappelle and um just like Chappelle did a show like this was before his comeback but like it was in New York several years ago and there you know Chappelle it was just on the eve of like you know a lot of the police killings that happened in 2015 yeah it was after that it was like like days after and there were still riots happening and Chappelle did this comedy show and he brought it up he talked about the police killings and this woman kind of just like in the audience said that you know life's tough deal with it and you know a lot of people were like this white woman very well to do like they were kind of commenting that she was dressed in a certain way like very affluent dressed but a lot of people were immediately would have been like you know fuck this woman you know we're never going to talk to her and never you know let her live like let her think the way she does but dave didn't do that like he like had a dialogue with them he he talked about like just a lot of the things that afflict black like black people um from like top down and in the end, you know, he was able to, like, be an educator. Like, he was supposed to, like, you know, he still had jokes because he's, like, Dave Chappelle. He's brilliant. But, like, he was still able to educate that woman. And at the end, instead of, like, you know, she didn't, like, storm off being, like, fuck you, Dave Chappelle. She actually went back to the green room where comedians hang out. And as, like, an individual, she shot, she shot him. She saw him out and was, like, you know, very, you know, apologetic she was crying she couldn't believe the things that she heard and she like understood like where she was like how she like was wrong and then dave was like look you know that's it's okay it's now you know what you can be you can be part of the solution like that's that's like it's really it's a community effort you know and you can't just you can't just like block out you know the people that you disagree with because in this country that's like 40 percent of the country right there you need that 40 percent to like you know be on the side of like pushing change and you can only do that if you have that conversation with them you know yeah it, it's a time for it's a time for understanding it's a time for grace yeah those are those are going to be important things yeah like i don't want to be like you know self what like self-promoting here but like my friend she said this thing to me which is that i'm glad i could talk with you because you don't resort to name calling or whatever you don't like think i'm a racist for saying these things and i truly don't because this person is my friend and i know them and like i trust them and you know what they're entitled to their opinion and i'm happy to like learn more and like they've helped me learn some things as well and so 
Why can't you do the same for them, right? Yep. <laughs> if only everyone I mean, thought that it's, way. It's a big right? ask. You gotta, you know, some people won't. It's not. It's you hard. Ever, you ever, like, it's, it's so not hard easy. to convince people to, like, think differently, that, that think differently from you to, like, I'm not even asking them to think like me. I'm just asking them to kind of see where I'm coming from and then help them inform a little bit more of where they could be, you know? Like, it's just, I'm not saying everyone has to think the same way, but I like I would like to, like, you know, think that if you shared information and knowledge that people would be accepting of that. And knowledge comes from a lot of different places, you know? And so that's why I've just been listening to a lot of, like, kind of, quote-unquote, the other side a little bit, especially black conservatives, because I think their voices in this are just as, you know, important you know i think it's their voice like what they believe in because unfortunately these guys kind of talk about how they get called a lot of you know unfavorable names especially within the black community there's a particular one yeah. i'm sure that you're talking about yeah but i think i i think that this this sort of topic that you're you're bringing up about um you know kind of convincing people and persuading people and and the difficulty of that i think we would be surprised and everybody would be surprised at how open people are to persuasion given the opportunity to hear the right voices. And I think that's one of the really incredibly positive outcomes already of this whole situation is that people are recognizing it's just really important to hear from people, to hear black voices in this specifically. Like it's more more of those so-called Karens will be persuaded by hearing the stories and hearing the personal narratives and the, the thought processes of black thinkers and black people than I think most of us would expect. And I think if we give people the chance to be persuaded by elevating on a higher platform voices that haven't been heard, we'll be surprised by how much people can change. Yeah, I agree. I think going back to something we mentioned earlier, like, you know, the implicit bias training in that police department in Arizona you can't go in guns blazing, just talking shit, you know, like even if you think it's true and even if it is true, you know, that's just, that's not how you bring about change, you know, like in, like if someone did the same thing to me, like calling me whatever, and I'm just like, I'm not going to want to work with this guy. And so you gotta, you gotta be aware people are people, you know, it, it, like we're really not that different in the way how our opinions form and, you know, where our information, like where, like you know, the information that we read and how it informs our opinions is not, it's not different. It's just, it manifests differently in the opinion, like the opinions that are formed, but the way it goes about it, it's not different at all. As they say, you catch more honeys being fly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, it's not easy. It's actually very stressful to talk about, but it's also like, you know, if you can change a person's mind or like you can get them to think a different way, it's, 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 if you can pull it off, it's very gratifying. Alex, this has been a delight. Um, it's a tough topic. We appreciate it. We appreciate your candor and your exposing yourself um, to mean tweets from uh, all of the various talk radio personalities who are, of course, listening to this. So apologies. Just at him directly. Um, this was great. Yeah. Thank you. No, thanks for asking me. I've been thinking about just, you know, this conversation in general and what it's supposed to sound like, if it's supposed to sound like anything. I think I've been thinking about calling our good friend Dylan and just being like pretending to be like innocuous and pretending it's like about nothing and then just surprise him about this shit. I'd be like, got you, you fuck. I got you. All right, we're going to have this conversation. <laughs> and just like overwhelm him. He's like, I thought we were talking about football. <laughs> uh, nah. I want to be clear how, t- t- since you're going to say that. I just want to actually say uh, 
Dylan, I actually sent Dylan a text, um, our good friend, right when this whole thing kind of started, thanking him for giving me the the sort of courage to post on my social media about my thoughts on this topic. I don't really use my social media very much other than to just lurk uh, and typically disdainful of people who use their social media to promote really anything other than cute pictures of their relatives and cats and food and stuff. So my interests, but I, Dylan posted something and I was like, wow, Dylan, Dylan is like me, somebody who kind of approaches social media that way. And if he felt strongly enough about this to post something that gives me the courage to, to, yeah, to do the same thing. And so I, I was really, I was really impressed and empowered by that. Yeah, no, I'm not saying Dylan wouldn't be. Able I to know have you're not, but I want to make sure we don't end on a note where we're joking about Dylan because we make fun of him too much on this podcast. Yeah, I'm coming for you, Dylan. Just you watch. <laughs> All right, so Kyle, do you want to to walk us off here, play us off, Johnny? Yeah. Uh, thanks, Alex. This was not like necessarily fun, but I did enjoy talking to with the three of us. Um, so thanks for wanting to do it and giving it the attention that you did. Um, this is normally the part where we would recap, but I don't think that's necessary at all. Um, so we'll just skip to the thank yous. I'll thank Kevin McLeod for our theme music. That shit's stanky. Uh, we skipped the, we skipped the not top three today, but he'll be back next week probably. Um, and then I always thank my sister Aaron for our artwork, which is stanky in its own right. And if you want to see more of Aaron's stylings, Instagram is the place to do that. At and speaking of that stanky, stanky Instagram, I want to thank our social media director, Caroline Labranti, my fiance, for her work on our social media, particularly our Instagram. You can check that out at top10km on Instagram with the 10 spelled out T-E-N. If you want to check out her stuff, including coming soon, some of her first photos as a wedding photographer, ah. you can check that out on cml.photos on Instagram. And if you're looking for another way to get in touch with the boys of Top 10, you can shoot us an email at top10km at gmail.com with the 10 spelled out T-E-N. I think particularly this week, we'd love to, I mean, I, we're not expecting to generate a great national debate, but if anybody has anything they want to say or disagrees with anything we said, we'd love to hear from you. Legitimately, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and if you want to come on to talk about any of this stuff, we would we would love to have you. Um, and then finally, I'm sure you're listening to us on some sort of podcast app but if you're looking for another one we are on the apple podcast app stitcher spotify podbean alex is looking at himself in his camera or pretty much wherever podcasts can be found so dogs that's what i would say arrivederci wait amigos uh, mike are you do you have i actually wanted to ask you something real quick not related to anything we've just been talking about oh let me add end it right here